1: Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we give you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversation from 11,000 feet here in the beautiful Eastern Sierra. And as always, the three of us are here. I'm Christopher.
2: I'm Stacy.
1: And our loyal, trusted, and um, the person we all follow, producer Doug, is here as well. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hey, how's it going, guys? Going we great. Good. 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 Glad to hear it. Um, it goes without saying, you know, we record these episodes a little bit early um, before they're released, but it has been a crazy end of the summer here in the Eastern Sierra. You know, our our hearts and thoughts go out to all the firefighters and all the people affected um, all throughout California and the Western states with all these fires that are happening. What we are experiencing is a lot. Of smoke, right, yes. Stace?
2: Yes, it's been. I mean, you walk outside, it's like you're in a chimney. Um, it's oppressive.
1: We've, we've all learned to talk in the language of air quality index. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really didn't understand existed um, before this summer, yeah. but now we're all amateur experts at it. It's true. At any rate, Um, We did manage to get um, a a great adventure in and and a great conversation in for this episode. We're we're actually listeners spending some time on the eastern side of Mono County this time. We know many of you are familiar with the area, but if you don't get off of the east side of 395 very much, um, there's a whole section of Mono County out there that is just fascinating and full of history and beauty and hiking and trails and, and what have you. And so we just Uh, put our toes in in one little corner of it um, and walked up to what is known as the Wild Rose Mine. Had you ever been there before, Stace?
2: I I had not at all. And, you know, I've done some exploring around the Benton area, going to see the petroglyphs that are out there and Mm -hmm. things like that. But I had not been to the Wild Rose Mine uh, before you and I went.
1: Yeah, I hadn't either. And so um just to kind of situate you situate you listeners where we are. If you do know the area and you drive up 395 you've gone up sherwin grade you've passed the big beautiful crowley lake and then you come to the green church everyone knows where the Mm -hmm. green church is kind of um just south of the mammoth airport and turn right that's benton crossing road and a lot of fishermen know where that is because they go right out to the owens river there and um, do some great fishing Um, But if you keep driving along that road, a beautiful windy road through pinyon forests and rock formations and all that good stuff that we love about this area, it takes you over to Benton itself, um, which is a historic little town. We're going to hear from Bill Bramlett of the Inn at Benton Hot Springs later, Um, but if you stop uh, just down from the Wild Rose Summit, you can walk up to the Wild Rose Mine. So Wild Rose, we should mention, is a common feature name out in the West. There are Wild Rose Canyons and Wild Rose Summits and Wild Rose Peaks kind of all over, including a very famous one down in Death Valley um, National Park. We've got one here on Benton Crossing Road. And What's nice about this one is it, it's, it's uh, got all the features of an old mine that you would want to see. It's got some old structures left. We think one of them must have been the house that they lived in because it has like a sink and all this stuff in it. It looked like uh, a house. It looked like a house, right? No. <laughs> it's falling apart. We didn't go yes. inside because we didn't want to get tetanus. No. Um,
2: <laughs> we, didn't even, we didn't even let Lola inside. We
1: didn't even let the Lola dog and the inside. Lola the dog did
2: not go inside.
1: Exactly. But you can walk up from the road to this mine. It's, it's maybe a 15 minute walk. It's not very difficult. It is uphill. Um, but I'm not sure this actually qualifies as a hike. I think this is kind of a walk walk. Yes. (laughs) Um, And yeah, you walk up and you see the remnants of the mine. There's the mine tailings there, which is the stuff Mm -hmm. left over that when they're digging stuff out of the, out of the mountains there. And it's really remote. I think I turned and and asked you Stace, like, how did they choose to come here and put a shovel in the ground? It's just like this weird (laughs) spot in the middle of these hills.
2: Uh, I think it was just kind of the, you know, that's just kind of what people did. Right. right. I mean, resulting from the gold rush days. Right. right? And then, right. oh, well, there's other things in here that we can dig up too. Yeah. And let's just try. You know, I think there was very much a kind of a pioneer, let's give it a go spirit.
1: Right. Right. So there are multiple mine openings there. There are two that you can still see um, very easily with the naked eye. One of them is completely covered over. The other one's partially covered over. It looks bigger. That was probably the main wild rose mine where Mm -hmm. we understand from this website, the diggings.com, that it was silver, lead, and gold that came out of these hills. Not sure how much because it wasn't a very big operation. It didn't look like it ever became a big operation, but there is definitely one of the mines that isn't completely closed in. It's just kind of like this dark, ominous hole into yeah. The ground, right. I think you That proved, was so
2: that was so trippy. <laughs> I,
1: you, sure you, you no got way, way to go. too
2: close for my comfort. I
1: <laughs> don't go in mines, listeners. We yeah. you, you know, we know that that's something that people like to explore and it's very enticing, but they're just not safe.
2: No. And you know, there are so many there there are quite a few of these little mines in the Benton area because just a couple weeks before you and I went to wild rose mine my husband and i and lola the dog of course were exploring out in this area and we found another mine really and we saw you know found you know there was the the wheel and the the big the big tower and yeah. the, you know with a big shaft going all the way down it was really freaky <laughs> um like we threw a penny down there and it took like a good several seconds before that <laughs> penny dropped
1: It was a trip,
2: man. But if you know, as you're as you're exploring out in this area, you're going to see a lot of remnants of, you know, whether it's old rusted drums, or, you know, big wheels that are left over. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing.
1: You can't really swing a cat in these hills without hitting an old Mining claim yeah. is what it seems like. Yeah. And you can actually there are mining sites online. You can Google mm-hmm. mining yeah. um and see where all these old mine sites are. I think some of them still have active claims. But you know, at some point in time, probably a hundred years ago or more, they were really active hills. There was a lot of industry yeah. happening out there mm-hmm. and people trundling ore here and there and miners out there staking claims i can just imagine what it was like whereas today it's just it's hiking it's fishing yeah. it's the sheep herders right. you know yep. it's, it's kind of different right
2: yep starting tomorrow it'll be hunting season
1: and it'll be hunting season there you go which exactly. will be
2: over by the time this episode airs but for- <laughs> right. when we're recording it tomorrow is hunting season so
1: um But yeah, you know, it's just, it was an example of something like the Panem Crater that we did in uh, a recent episode Mm -hmm. where it's easily accessible off a road to have an adventure that doesn't take a whole lot of effort um, or expertise. You just got to be, have some nice boots on and be careful where you step um, and, you know, take a bottle of water with you. But, you know, we, we were there for maybe an hour, if that, right?
2: Yeah. And it was, it was just fun kind of. So exploring around and imagining, well, not only imagining what, how these people got there, but what they found.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and, was, the, and the view was beautiful.
2: Yeah. It, and it was a beautiful day.
1: So It was a beautiful, beautiful day. There's
2: always something fun to do in Mono County.
1: That's, that's the tagline, right?
2: Yes. <laughs> if it's not, it should be. It should be.
1: We just created it.
2: There you go.
1: <laughs> well, listeners, so that's just kind of a little tidbit um about the eastern side of the county that we're going to be talking about a little bit later as well. But that's the Wild Rose Mine. You can Google it if you really want to find it and and go explore yourself. We just ask you to be respectful. We didn't damage Further damage any of these structures or take anything with us or what have you, just kind of preserve it for other people to explore as well. And uh, yeah, sit down, take a breath, go get some water, and we will be right back
0: to talk books. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Just make sure you find us.
2: Welcome back, listeners. We are at the B book section of our podcast. Time for the cheer. Yay! Yay! Okay. We're so happy. We love this This part we've got, to our, um, we've
1: got to get our cheer down.
2: I know we've got, maybe I'll talk to Tessa and the cheer squad and maybe they can, they can actually do a cheer for us and we can insert it.
1: That's perfect. <laughs>
2: it might be a little much. Okay. So uh, this week we had, we read a book. We both read the same book that we're going to talk about that was recommended by one of our listeners Jeff Aranguena from Mariposa County. Thank you, Jeff, for suggesting this book. It's called Dear Bob and Sue. And it is written by a couple named Matt and Karen Smith. Um, They have actually now written, this is volume one that we read. They've actually written now three books of Dear Bob and Sue. And the, the, um, premise is is that they have endeavored to visit all of the U.S. national parks, of which there are 59. And as they visit these parks, they chronicle their adventures via emails to their friends, Bob and Sue. And Matt and Karen alternate the authorship of these emails. So the book kind of goes back and forth. It's in Matt's voice, and then it's in Karen's voice and back and forth and they, they just tell all about their adventures. So it's kind of, you know, this is, this is definitely a nonfiction. It's definitely a travel log. It's a, it can almost be a guide to what to do and what not to do when you're visiting national parks. (laughs) And um, it's, was pretty fun. I, th- I found it to be pretty funny. How about you?
1: Yeah, you know, I it is. It's it's part travel log, part just folksy recounting what they mm-hmm. did, right, to yep. friends, which I thought was a clever device for writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a book in letters or emails yeah. to emails, be more right? accurate. Um, and is it fifty nine national parks or fifty-eight national parks? I know they have this conversation early on in the book, but I can't remember.
2: My research <laughs> says fifty nine.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, but what I so I'll just tell a story. What I admire right off the bat about this couple is they're our age. They're kind of Yeah entering middle age without giving mm-hmm. anyone's real ages away, their their kids are out of the house <laughs> yes. and they decide before they get too old and too, um, immobile, mm-hmm. that they're going to just quit their jobs and go have this adventure, which is, right. you know, an envious thing to do and a courageous thing to do. And, um, you know, kudos to them for turning it into a blog and a book that they can kind you
2: know, oh, yeah. of recoup some of
1: money. But, um, yeah, you know, I, that, that's the early impression. And then the other early impression is that they are a couple that clearly enjoys each other's company, which you would need to be absolutely <laughs> if you're going around um, all the national parks. Yes. Um, for sure. Totally. And then the other thing that I enjoyed is they kind of set up the, the, the adventures is that, I don't think that they ever understood they would become this couple who get excited going to every national park and taking a photo with a sign and getting their national park passport stamped, um, you know. And I was kind of thinking the same thing as I was reading that little blurb that, you know, younger I would have probably just kind of thought, oh, you know, who – who really gets excited about getting their book stamped or getting a right. photo of their every sign? But as I reached my own middle age, you know, it is kind of fun to.
2: <laughs> I know, I, I, I agree. And I have to say that I was like, when as i started reading this and i got a couple of parks in i said to my husband we have to do this <laughs> I, you know i got totally into the idea of collecting the park stamps and you know going to see all these parks you know just like they did and you know i thought it was very very telling and um you know about their relationship when you know at the beginning of the book when she's explaining that he makes a list and his backpack is so specifically packed and he doesn't (laughs) forget anything. And, you know, she throws things in and, you know, nothing makes sense and she never has what she needs or food or whatever. And it reminds me so much of myself and my husband.
1: (laughs) I was going to say it's you and Joe.
2: Especially the duct tape. (laughs) You know, I mean, when, you know, they, you know, she tells about you know, how he always has to have his duct tape and. Joe and I, when we first got together and started traveling together, he'd always throw duct tape into his duffel bag, and it became a big joke that we never travel. We have gone to Paris with duct tape in our luggage because you never
1: travel anywhere without duct tape. You never know when you need it, and you don't know how to say duct tape in French. You should probably have it in your bag.
2: That's right. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: And Steve... Speaking of bags, I think it is hilarious. And speaking of bags is he is so uh, Matt is so hyper organized. He has different backpacks for different types of hikes in different occasions. Yes. And she calls them his man purses.
2: Right. I love that. I love that. that, was I love that. Yeah. It was great.
1: But basically, they they live in the Seattle area, mm-hmm. and they start out with the national parks in Washington State, so just right. north of Seattle, and then over on the Olympic Peninsula where the Ho River rainforest, and which are beautiful, stunning places to go, and that's kind of where they get their feet wet, um, right? In more ways than one, and you know, it kind of starts. That's where they kind of set the tone of you know the the kind of cute tone of these emails. And at one point they're visiting Rainier, um, which is South of Seattle. And they're talking about how she's never seen so many marmots. Right. She she had never seen a marmot in her life until a month before when they started this project. And now she's seen and knows about four different species.
2: Right. Exactly. And can identify them
1: and can identify them and how much people like to take photos of marmots. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> which is true. We always look for the marmots when we're hiking around here in the Eastern Sierra as well. Um, I also enjoyed that um, Karen doesn't like to pee on the trail. So that sometimes determines how far they're going to hike. Right. Back, right, <laughs> which, is, yeah. um,
2: which is logical.
1: Which is logical, but it also speaks to um, who they are. Right. So right. these are not, people doing the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, they're going to these parks and, you know, they're driving to them, you know, just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. They're having the quintessential tourist experience and they bring a day pack with them right. um, in most cases to do a defined hike on a defined trail. Um, and sometimes they'll do more than one and right. sometimes it's with a ranger and sometimes it's not. Um, but they're just really there to do what the national park designs these parks to do for people, right? Um, which is to drive up, park, go, appreciate nature, appreciate what they're seeing, and learn about the history of it, and then stop at the gift shop. You know, right?
2: <laughs> buy, the yeah, buy the mugs.
1: Yeah, buy the mugs. They they often pack in their food. They're very frugal with their money. Um, yes.
2: Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. A lot of
1: you know which we do too. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you know a lot of people will relate to this couple, and I think that's one of the enjoyable aspects of this this book.
2: And and they if if you are not somebody who's ever hiked or ever visited a national park, they don't make these adventures daunt you know seem like they're too much. You know because of the way they travel through these parks in in chunks. It's you know it's palatable for anybody anybody could could do what
1: they're doing and they're actually really upfront when they they get when they do get in over their head so mm-hmm. one of my favorite um little stories out of this is they visit the black canyon of the gunnison national park which i had never heard of but i think it's Ohio or Iowa, somewhere in that area. And it is a canyon. And so, you know, when you go to hike a trail in a park, you get a pass from the ranger and then you have to turn it back in when you leave. So the ranger knows that you're gone. Um, and this is a canyon. Then the trail goes down and then you turn around and come back up the trail, kind of like the grand Canyon, right? Right. And so they go and uh, sign up with Betty, the ranger who has been, around the block a few times and mm-hmm. she knows exactly who she's talking to so she has to give them the you know the kind of educational spiel before they right. take off on the trail and he's paying a lot of attention to betty but she kind of wanders off to look at the knickknacks to buy and betty calls her right back right (laughs) and you know so she has to listen to what betty says and part of what betty says is you'll see you can see mountain lions and bears on this trail and she betty says i'm not going to tell you about the mountain lions because if you see one you'll you're it's over Uh, i'll tell you about the bears instead and what to do if you see a bear because you have a chance there but one of the things (laughs) betty says is that this is a very steep trail and part of it is so steep that you need a chain to hoist yourself. There's a chain along the trail. And, oh, but they're still going to do it. And so they go off and how bad can it be? And they basically, I think they ask maybe 20 minutes. (laughs) They don't don't even get to the chain part. They have to hold onto rocks and shrubbery to kind of get themselves down and then back up. And their tail is so between their legs, they want to sneak back to the car, but they have to turn the pass back in to Betty. So she goes to hide (laughs) in the car while Matt goes in to kind of just... Slyly slide this right. back on the counter, and of course Betty notices <laughs> them. So you know <laughs> they have their moments. And they
2: have to eat crow a little they bit.
1: Have to eat yeah. crow a little bit, and it's just kind of a quirky little story, and that's kind of the tone in which they deliver it. So,
2: and there—that's kind of the whole nature of the whole book, or you know, one story after another, because when you're traveling to all these different parts, you're going to have these experiences that are you know, sometimes you're going to have to eat a little bit of crow, a bit of crow. but and, you know, it was, it was fun for me to read all the parks that they visited that I've been to. Right. You know, so I really had a good picture of where they were,
1: you know, and I appreciated that. I, I kind of flipped around chapters to read all those first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> because then, I know my impression of those parks, you know, like Yosemite and, you know, right. we, Last summer, we drove over to have lunch at the owani Hotel one day and just really enjoyed it. And so I really wanted to see what they had to say about it. And, you know, they, they really loved it, too. Of course, he spent a lot of time talking about cheap bottle openers and a spork. Because right. he just kind of digresses that way. But it's kind of humorous. And then what I learned is that, you know, you can bring your own food into the lobby of these magnificent park hotels. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to eat in their restaurant, which right. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't read this book.
2: So there's a good takeaway.
1: they do after a while I will say this um they do sometimes get fixated and I think this would happen naturally on the cost of things um or the other people who are at the parks too like you know if there's a big tour bus worth of people who come off to look at the same tree he's looking at he's kind of enjoying the quiet and then suddenly there's these loud people you know and just getting a little frustrated there.
2: Well, yeah. And he does, you know, I have to say that he doesn't have a, a very great tolerance for park rangers <laughs> and and their questions. And, you know, again, it just, it just, some of these things just took me back to personal experiences that I've had on right. these kinds of tours. And right. Although I was very upset with them that they went to the Volcano National Park in um, on the Big Island of Hawaii, mm-hmm. and they did not go in the lava tubes. That's like the best part of that park, is what? the lava tubes, and they didn't go in that part of the hike.
1: Why wouldn't you go in the lava tubes? Weren't we talking lava tubes we the did. other week? There's we because there's we some in the Owens Valley.
2: Right. We were talking about <laughs> going to some at here, and... Yeah. And then we were talking about that, but so I was I was bummed at them for not, but maybe in another book, another one of their books, they've gone back and they've done it again. But um, I have to ask you this: who did, was there, one or the other that you, whose writing you liked
1: better? You know, I have to say I, at the end because they they do have slightly different flavors. Yeah. I think that's intentional. It Definitely. also brings out their personality. I kind of liked. Um, it depended on the situation. I liked kind of the sarcastic, snarky tone that Matt would bring uh-huh. to some things. And then I liked Karen's kind of, you know, that's my idiot husband. I have to go <laughs> apologize to the park ranger after he talks to him kind of thing. Yeah. Because that's very much a couple thing, right? Mm-hmm. What I liked about both of them is they genuinely appreciate where they're visiting. Um, and you know, the national parks are amazing. There's just, there's such a variety and everything from in our own state, from Yosemite to Sequoia to Death Valley, they are so vastly different and they really appreciated all of them. So, um, yeah you know if listeners, if you're of that ilk um you like reading kind of light humorous stories, kind of like a Bill Bryson kind of tone yeah. um, and you like visiting national parks, but you're not necessarily an avid, avid hiker or you know spelunking caves or climbing rocks, but you're just like a day hiker, um, you would probably enjoy these books,
2: yeah, definitely, and they're they're just you know, with everything that's going on right now in the world, this is a good way to experience vicariously through um, Matt and Karen, all that the national parks have to offer and have a few good laughs along the way. So Jeff, thank you so much for the recommendation. And
1: it was, it was Dear Bob and Sue.
2: Dear Bob and Sue by Matt and Karen Smith and, We really appreciate the recommendation. And listeners, if you have recommendations for us, please email us and let us know. Take a deep breath and we'll be right back.
0: Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to the C portion of the Oxygen Starved Podcast. This is the section where we bring you a conversation with a local Sierra, Eastern Sierra, um, individual or group that contributes uniquely to our work, play, live, lifestyle here in the Eastern Sierra. And today we're really excited to be joined by Bill Bramlett, who uh, runs and owns the Inn at Benton Hot Springs and um, has quite a bit of history in the area. So, Bill, welcome to the Oxygen Starved podcast. Welcome.
3: Thank, Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
1: I you know Bill, I reached out to you. We've reached out to you a couple of times and 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 I was excited to hear you speak at the Eastern Sierra Land Trust fundraiser a couple of weeks ago because you gave such a rich history of the Benton area, which for our listeners is um on the eastern side of Mono County, near almost the Nevada State line, and closer to Highway Six. Than uh, three ninety five. If you've if you've not been over to that side of the county, Bill, can you kind of just to set this set the stage for our listeners? Like, what is your history with Benton Hot Springs and your family's history, and 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 what? How did you end up running the inn there?
3: Well, um, my family's been uh, the owner of Benton Hot Spring, and there's about twelve hundred and fifty five acres, so it's a pretty large area. Um, the valley the meadow down through and the old town um, for about 92 years and my grandparents were here for about 70 years Uh, my great-grandfather actually purchased it in 1928 and so my wife and I um who both had careers with the Forest Service and and we uh we decided after we retired and my wife retired a little early, so we had to look at trying to have some kind of a income to uh, take care of ourselves as well as this property. And right. so we, we uh, started working on trying to reopen some of the uh, existing facilities we had here, um, lodging. We've used a lot of the old buildings for that have been here forever for um, lodging. Um, my grandparents in 1948 built a motel, which we've put into the inn at Benton. And then mm-hmm. we have uh, we have 12 uh, tub sites that we, they're set up kind of like a, a, a campground, but it's really, they're tub sites. We rent out tubs and people come here and, you know, use it for an hour, use it for 10 days sometimes and stay here overnight to just enjoy the remoteness and the rustic nature of the place. and. We have basically a lot of public land around us, um, surrounded mm-hmm. by um, BLM-administered public lands. And then to our south is the Benton Paiute Reservation. Um, mm-hmm. We have very little land um, in the area that is private. Most of it is is down by Benton Station. And right. I, I call – there's a lot of confusion about when people ask about, you know, Benton and Benton Station, and, and Benton Station was the old – um, railroad station right. and, and everything that um, was freighted up after 1883, when the railroad was put in over Montgomery passed to laws, um, everything was freighted up to Benton um, to support the, the mining in the area. And most everything here was, most of it was silver and mm-hmm. um, Blind Spring Hill was probably the largest <laughs> district, the richest silver mining district. In the area and but there were others like Montgomery City, uh, mm-hmm. Queen, Queen Canyon, all the way even over to Mammoth, that Benton was sort of the hub of um, supplying the miners and a lot of the ranchers in the area with um, you know what supplies and the services that they needed in the area so and the reason Benton popped up was because of the hot spring and the reliability of water here there's a spring that's totally perennial right no flows maybe 800 gallons a minute it's 140 degree temperature it's potable wow it's just just an unbelievable uh resource and you can understand why the early native americans were here as well um yeah so uh, that you know the the town itself um you know it was maybe a little bit earlier than a uh, places like Bodie when it took off, mm-hmm. uh, but it's much smaller, you know, Bodie I think was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people at its peak. And Benton here was about a thousand people. Right. Uh, and so it, it wasn't as large. Um, we still have a number of historic buildings here. Uh, maybe some of the most important buildings in Mono County still uh, historically are, are here. I live in, an 1866, um, building that was built by, uh, Dr. Parts, which was one of the early miners, but he, whereas most people think of Ben at Uh that time in the 1860s, there were two towns here, half a mile apart. And both of those towns were supplying, you know, trying to compete to supply the miners and, and take care of the miners. And the, you know, the, people coming through the area and lodging them. And so they both places had hotels, uh, butcher shops, you know, feed stores, stores, liquor stores, um, all everything you can possibly think of. But um, eventually parts kind of um, fizzled out and Benton kind of won that war. And so, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, Benton survived um, up until about, you know, at one time here, we we were down to three people living in. And that was my my grandparents and myself. And the reservation hadn't developed yet. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have anybody else living here in town. And it was, uh, you know, it's kind of a lonely place at times to grow up, but it, it was also very exciting. I mean, I, I loved the old place. We had a lot of old buildings and, you know, be able to explore a lot of the area around here because so much of the, the town has been lost because it was, you know, most of the buildings, about half of the buildings were built out of a, a pumice block, which is very, um, you know, useful because they have a quarry of pumice just less than a half a mile on a bluff to the West of here. Right. And so they built most of the buildings that are still standing out of that pumice block, uh, most of the wood buildings, um, they just threw up and, you know, they were torn down and used for um, other buildings, you know, throughout the years. And and so most of those buildings have pretty much deteriorated except for the, the house I'm living in and, and uh, really two other houses that are, mm-hmm. that are pretty old here. But so we spend a lot of time just taking care of the place and taking care of the not only the business, but the business really helps take care of the, the history here. And like you mentioned earlier that, yeah, we have a nonprofit. We we started a nonprofit about t- t- 10, 12 years ago. And so we do a lot of, um, you know, research of the history, uh, research of individuals that lived here um, and, you know, the mining history of the place. And then we, we try to uh, develop interpretive information like mm-hmm. – self-guided walking tours. Um, mm-hmm. we have, uh, interpretive signs and a, a lot of the work we've done up at the Benton cemetery because it, you know, it's on the property, but it's just sort of over the years, it's just sort of fallen apart. And right. so we've got a number of projects going to try to you know, um, we've, we've learned that through the research that there's about 135 to 40 people that have been buried up there, but we don't know really where half of them are buried. And so, Uh. you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the graves don't get disturbed in the future that, you know, that the fence is far enough out. And so we, we've done some GPR, we've got a, a researcher that we're working with and she's actually, um, an American, but she works with the uh, uh, in New Zealand, the University of New zealand and she 's been mm-hmm. able to do a lot of funding to help us um, uh, go through and use ground penetrating radar and try wow. to look graves and uh, mark them and so we 're doing a lot of work and a lot of projects with the nonprofit in that respect and mm-hmm.
1: That's or, amazing. That's amazing. That I wouldn't even think that. Yeah, there's this technology out there that would help you reconstruct what used to be there or what is still the the people basically that are still underground. That's amazing.
3: Yeah, the the woman's name is Rebecca Ken, Keniston, and she um, she's done two or three uh, historic graveyards um, kind of all okay. over the West, and they they like. The kind of the era that we're we're in, you know, the the 1860s through you know maybe the up until present time, our our graveyard is still active. But um, yeah, they, it's amazing what they can learn. You know, they can from just and generally what they do is they they excavate uh, some of the unmarked graves that they find just to make sure that in fact it is a human right. and and that it is. Um, they can tell by just running a lot of tests you know maybe the uh you know the race of the person the age the sex what they the diet it was it's amazing what they um can actually learn from just examining and then they they repatriate everything back into the grave and, and
1: right. so and one of the most famous burials up there is mor morrison right
3: yeah, most most people, you know, especially around Mammoth area, you know, of Mount Morrison and Convict Lake and the whole story there. But Morrison was really the first uh, merchant. From uh, he had he had gone to he was a miner. He had gone to Owensville out of at Laws and out of Bishop, right. and then, and then he came to uh, Montgomery City. Um, was a merchant. Th- he decided to become a merchant rather than a miner because he realized that there was more money in it. And so <laughs> he, uh, he built a small store in Montgomery City. And then when Benton happened in, in 1864, 1865, he was the first uh, merchant to put up any kind of a structure and uh, provide a, a store for people, the mining. Uh, was happening on Blind Spring Hill at that time. So he was but right. he was quite a uh he was quite a popular resident here. Um and you know it, it really hit the town pretty hard when he died. Um you know it, it's you know the story is pretty amazing because right. his he was engaged to be married to a woman by the name of Sarah Devine. And she was down in Los Angeles um, when the posse formed actually, you know, exactly at this time of year. I think it was just two days ago, I think September 17th or right around there Mm -hmm. in 1871. And the posse, you know, uh, you know, trapped the convicts over there in in Convict Lake. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Morrison and uh, a Native American uh, by the name of Mono Jim from Benton uh, were both killed and, you know, they, but yeah, um, they brought uh, Morrison back and gave him a Masonic uh, funeral up here. And, and so he's one of the more popular graves that people can, you know, go up and visit.
2: So when people are coming to the, um, to your resort, are they coming to, for the history? Or are they coming for the hot springs? What, you know, what is drawing
3: them? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, it is pretty amazing that you know what we're about is is being authentic. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. people call us a, a time warp. You know, and you know our interpretive work around here. You know, the best way of describing it is almost a ghost town. And and you know, it to keep the old uh, flavor of the town and the rustic nature of it um you know in this day and age in this world it's not for everyone you know mm-hmm. we don't we don't try to you know if people if we can tell if somebody's trying to make a reservation and they're obviously looking for a sheraton and and you know they're going to be really unhappy when they come out here <laughs> <laughs> make us very unhappy and our employees so we try to direct them to places that they would be more suitable and happy with their trip and because we are rustic you know we even mm-hmm. in our tub site facilities you know we might have a picnic table but there's no hookups you know there's nothing right. that we would try to really encourage anybody to come and stay in camp that kind of thing but the hot water itself is probably the number one attraction and then i think that people get here and they realize that you know 24 hours in a hot tub you know you get, kind of like a prune and so they <laughs> want to look around and and so they 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 find out that there is a lot of history here and um by taking a self-guided walking tour they learn a lot and you know we do get a lot of people with our nonprofit that have just come here and then they realize how much more there is to the place and then they really want to come back and because they love history and they want to learn more about the you know the history of the place and yeah. so that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing that seems to bring most of the people here we we get very few people just dropping in off the road like like last night we had i guess yosemite uh closed uh and so a lot of the people that had reservations and were camping and staying in yosemite had nowhere to go and um or and so the, we had probably 3 different groups that stopped by and wanted, uh, we put in, we were able to take care of a couple because we had cancellations. We're almost always a hundred percent full wow. by, by reservation on our tub sites. And so we were able to put up a couple of them last night because, we, because of the smoke people had left early or they had canceled. And so we were happy for them for that. But, um, you know, at the bed and breakfast and at the houses um, all of them have you know, the hot water, the tub sites. And so I think it's really the hot water that probably attracts people here the most. But like I say, um, being out here, the dark skies are just amazing. Um, You know, Mm. when we have them and we don't have smoke, but the town itself is uh, just so different. And it it is kind of like a time warp. You know, you're kind of going into a place that You just don't find hardly anymore unless you want to go to Bodie and you don't usually get to spend the night at Bodie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, what I love about it is um, I'm often going into uh, Benton Station where the library is. So I kind of just drive through um, and think every time I should stop and walk around. I have not yet, Bill, which I shouldn't probably admit on this podcast, but I am drawn to that iconic Wells Fargo building. Can you talk a little bit about that and what 's inside that building, and do people ever get to go inside
3: we do um, it's it 's an amazing building um, and the fact that they built it it 's called the uh, the Benton stone store okay Gen- generally that was a common name for it. It was built in eighteen seventy two by George Hightower, who was the sheriff that led the posse that Morrison was killed at on you know in eighteen seventy one but um, it the store has been it, it was in in effect or in, and been in use really up until the point that my grandparents uh, discontinued uh, operating and it, it was that, and what they did was very slowly they you never knew for sure what day they would be open or closed they kind of <laughs> they stuck a hay hook in the door and and that was kind of the sign that you weren't supposed to come in. <laughs> but they sold gas there and until probably I would say the mid 80s and mm-hmm. they died in uh kind of the 70 or 97 98 and they were still in that building uh when they passed away but it the the building itself is is really a mono county resource the way I look at it it's just an eastern sierra it is an iconic building um because it was it was kind of labeled the Wells Fargo building, but it wasn't until later, um, after Morrison passed away, and the, mm-hmm. Mor- Morrison had his store across the street. Okay. the uh, The plaque on the front of the building says that you know it was Morrison's store, which it was not. Um, but Morrison was a Wells Fargo agent. He was a postmaster. Um, the The Wells Fargo building itself really wasn't. Um, moved over to the store there until probably the late 1870s. And then after that, um, it became known as kind of the Wells Fargo agency Mm -hmm. um, in Benton. But yeah, it's, it is full of Benton history. You know, the artifacts, uh, everything that we could put in there. It's, it's, uh, people walk in there and their jaw drops. It's kind of like, it's overwhelming experience. We have my grandmother canned, you know, uh, all kinds of, of things mm-hmm. and put them up on the shelves, and they're still there. And <laughs> That's great. It's still candy bars from the 1960s that are <laughs> – you know, it's, it's just – like I say, it's, it's, I had to do a little bit of work over there. So we try not to change much, but at the same time, there's things that need attention – so we are trying, we, um, our nonprofit has had, um, all of last year, 2019, we had most all of our, um, dinners at a history and dinner were held in the, uh, in the old general store. Oh, wow. So it, and then attached to the back general of the general store was one of the last buildings that were built in Benton when they were still mining. And that was in 190. S- four in 1906 it was finished in 1906 but it was the Wa hotel um prior to that many of the the hotels in town had uh burned down or were torn down you know most of them were, had been burned and so they built um they built the wall to kind of replace a lot of um the old hotels that had when were built in the 1870s and uh, were gone at that point so we still have the while we're a hotel attached to the store, uh, most of that is a wooden structure Right. that was built from a lot of the early um, uh, con- buildings in town here that they no longer were in-, in use. So,
2: so were the the thousand people that lived in in the Benton area at you know at its peak? Did they live in the hotels or did they have
3: but, you know, the majority of the people, um, like a lot of mining camps and a lot of mining towns, um, there were a lot of buildings here, but most of the people didn't live in the buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, In addition to people who were merchants and butchers and, you know, store shop owners and stuff like that, you know, they, hotels, yeah, there were a lot of people that lived in those, but they also had just tent structures, and uh, you can see the remnants from a lot of the old uh, dugouts, and they right. they put up tents that that people lived in, and uh, that's why it was pretty quick for them to tear them down and move on to onto mm-hmm. the next uh, strike or or town. And it, it's one of those things too that I just thought of. Uh, th- there's a lot of connectivity between the town of Benton, and you can imagine that that would have been so, but between Benton and a lot of the older towns like Bodie, right. and like, like mm-hmm. Aurora um, right. and uh, Mammoth and all the other mining camps uh, throughout Mono County and the eastern Sierra because people did move a lot. And, um, you know, the first person that that tried to occupy a white person that tried to occupy the, you know, and build a house and stay in Benton here in the valley um was the uh, partner of Bodie and which they didn't really get into mining in until later but they had made claims prior to coming to Ben he did mm-hmm. uh, and his name was Taylor and uh Taylor you know ended up you know being killed here but you know he also killed a lot of the native americans they had that was an issue that um the native americans were pretty I think they were pretty um open to people coming until uh, until some of their people were being killed around right. like like down around B- bishop and and then there was uh one that was killed here at the hot spring mm-hmm. and, and so the in eighteen sixty one there were very few white people uh mainly mostly coming from Southern California to, up to the aurora in the mining camp and in, in Aurora. But there weren't a lot of people staying here because at that time there wasn't much reason to mm-hmm. um it was only after after eighteen sixty four when the you know mining happened that um a lot of people just moved into town really quickly and and of course uh, at that point the Native Americans were um you know pretty much overrun and and defeated here but they 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 tried to protect the valley here for quite a while
1: and and today the the Native American Paiute reservation is adjacent to Benton Hot Springs, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah,
3: they have they have land going to the south um out of Benton right here. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's a lot of people um that you know were um, that had family that were related to the Benton Paiutes that that are um still living on the Benton reservation here now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you've already alluded to it, but back in its kind of its heyday as a mining camp, Benton was a little bit of a, a typical Wild West, not so lawful town, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, they, they they jokingly, I think more than realistically, but they used to always allude to Benton as a, a town without law. And I think it was one of the reasons that when they finally discovered that Aurora was in, Cal, in Nevada rather than California, and they had to find a... A uh, another county seat, you know, Mm they elected Bridgeport over Benton because they it was just viewed as a town without law. But the fact was they they always had um, a judge. They always had law, uh, you know, sheriff here. Right. Uh, You know, that pretty early on they built the jail, which we still we still have here in town. Right. You can see it right from right from the road. And, and there were always there were always uh, more lawyers than we needed according <laughs> to a lot of the old accounts.
1: <laughs> so you also just alluded to something else I guess way back then and you you can tell me if I'm correct Bill is you know back in the 1860s and when have you Mono County really once Aurora shifted to Nevada really only had three main settlements right Benton Bodie and Bridgeport, Mammoth Lakes didn't really exist so much as a town then, right?
3: That's correct. Yeah, yeah, I would say, and uh, you know, um, Montgomery City, which is kind of a misnomer. Um, you know, it was at no time was it ever a city, mm-hmm. but um, M- Montgomery City was there, and there were a number of other mining camps, um, but. You know, in terms of actually what you would call a town, I think that was pretty accurate. Yeah, just about three of them. Yeah. We had in, in the 1870s. Um, you know, we had a, a number of uh, county supervisors that were from Benton. We had uh, people that you know that were um, part of the California uh, legislature that you know they represented this area. Right. Um, so at that time, you know, there were uh, Benton had a. A good population of uh, miners uh, ranchers professionals businessmen um, so it, it was it was a it was a place to be at that point
1: so can you talk a little bit about uh, I'm going to shift gears here a little um, I mentioned that you had uh, given a talk at the Eastern Sierra Land Trust uh, benefit a few weeks ago can you talk a little bit about um, your uh, agreement with them on a conservation easement for your property
3: yeah um well i mentioned that i worked for the forest service as did my wife and um both of us you know we we also i had a, a background you know when i grew up here with my grandparents you know we had a um another ranch north of here mm-hmm. and, and so we always had livestock and and we grew alfalfa and so you know land was one of those things that you had a lot of, and you were very familiar with, and you learned a lot about. And, uh, you know, I naturally got attracted into working, you know, for a land management agency, the Forest Service. And, uh, you know, so after I retired um, in, I uh, can't even remember exactly when, but somewhere around 2006,
1: 2007,
3: mm-hmm. um, I started working with, uh, approached the land trust about the idea of Maybe having a, a conservation here a easement here on the property, and they were very interested. Um, you know, it's this whole area is very unique. There's a lot of uh, interesting, um, you know, attributes that you know, land attributes that, in addition to the hot spring, but we have a lot of springs on the property. A lot of them are you know, um, cold water or lukewarm water. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, meadow, lots of ponds, and so you know, being part of the high desert, you know, there's most of the private lands. You know, took all the or the you know the private ownership took a lot of the the really attractive, desirable lands in the early day. Mm-hmm. And um, so, my interest was really in you know how do how do you kind of pay back a little bit and and try to conserve. Um, a little of of what we have that are some of the really good properties in the Eastern Sierra. And I love what the land trust, you know, does, Um, you know, working with the forest service, I had dealt some with land trust and and doing land exchanges and and that kind of thing. And so um, I was very happy that the land trust was interested and um, our 900 acre. So of the 1255 acres, we have uh, about 70% of it, that is in a conservation easement today. And it's been a, um, it's been a great relationship with, uh, with the land trust, you know, because there's, there's so many things that, you know, it's easy to, to use and develop and subdivide and, and try to make money off of land. But, you know, there's more important things in life than uh, just making money and, you know, preserving and conserving some of the areas that, really are deserving of that um, and having a mission with, which the land trust does of trying to help private landowners uh, conserve some of that something that we could have never done you know 30 years ago but the, that they are here today to be able to help with that kind of thing is just um, a, a real gift you know f- for private landowners
2: are there right? any species of animals or birds or you know or plants that you're hoping to perhaps bring back or, or preserve, you know, with, with the conservation of this land?
3: I think all of that, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wide open, you know, there's so many things that, that um we, there's a lot of things we don't even know um about lands in this area, but one of the, one of the projects that we've already started working on with a uh, um, Eastern Sierra Land Trust and um, the state has to do with the uh, reintroduction of the Owens uh, speckled dace, and you know something that's been—it's it, pretty enda- getting close to being endangered. And mm-hmm. um, there's record of, of the dace being here in the ponds at um, the north part of the property in Benton. Mm-hmm in the thirties. And so what we, we've been trying to do is work towards, uh, getting the habitats ready to bring in and, and reintroduce some of the, the, uh, speckled days. And, and so in, in doing that, we have to get rid of, uh, some of the, the fish that have been introduced over the years, um, the Sacramento perch and which are the only fish that's really in those ponds. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of spring habitat. And, um, you know, so there's, there's uh lots of of snails that are very uh, interesting mm-hmm. uh, We had a survey of dragonflies not too long ago, and the number of dragonflies um amazed the researcher that you know was looking at them out there mm-hmm. and, um you know there's a a lily that is is um, and they're looking for protection for and um it it grows in a little band. Um, down around um, the north part of the conservation easement down there, and so there's a lot of um a lot of that kind of stuff that yeah definitely that we're looking at trying to do a better job of taking care of and and uh providing habitat for and we do we still do some grazing in there, but i don 't do any grazing myself anymore, but I have um an operator there, and you know to the extent that we need to modify, we have um the grazing and the, and protection of the springs. And so there's probably going to be a lot more of that kind of thing in the future. I would think of, of just opportunities for, uh, conservation projects. That's one of my big interests.
2: That's very cool. So Bill, you sound like you're a pretty busy guy. Do you have, (laughs) do you ever have time to enjoy living in, in Mono County, in Benton, and what do you like to do when you can just oh,
3: I, enjoy it? I enjoy it every day. Um, it's, it's just such an amazing place. Um, I, I mean, I probably didn't get into describing my uh, affinity for the land um, as well as I could have. But, you know, I, I try to get out, my wife and I try to get out and, and hike um, every day. I mean, we didn't get our walk in this morning, but we will this afternoon, even though there's a lot of smoke in the air, but (laughs) you know, um, we, we love to just, um, this last year, it was kind of one of the things I, I wouldn't say I was ever against it, but I I decided to buy one of these little, um, um, Kawasaki mules, you know, that's kind of a side by side that, you know, you can, uh, Diane's been here for 28 years or whatever it's been and she really hasn't seen much of the country. And so there's, you know, what 5,000 miles of roads on the Inyo and right. And, and to get out and just enjoy and drive and see those, it's pretty amazing. And so we do a lot of that, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, we've done a lot of camping this summer until, you know, the forest shut down um, right. a week or so ago. We were, we go out in, around glass mountain and spend a lot of, uh, uh, evenings but then we come in to work during the day and but at least you get out a little bit it's, it's yeah it's for a nice uh nice occasion
2: oh that's good that's great that you are able to enjoy where you work we're so lucky that
3: <laughs> we have yeah, that yeah, opportunity we have, and we have the natural hot water which in we sit in probably twice or three times a day <laughs>
1: <laughs> now everyone's jealous enough
2: <laughs> well, Bill, one thing we we always ask our guests is to please share what what you're reading now or if you have a favorite book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners.
3: Well, uh, th- it's a book that that I'm reading right now, and picked up again and it, it's a book that I read about 10 years ago. I I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it it's um titled uh, 1491 it's a book by Charles Mann um it it talks a lot about as you can imagine before white man came to um the americas and what there's so many um so much in our history has been um, you know established from a, a white person's per, um perspective and which is important but there's i i think there's a lot more Research that's happened in the last hundred years or two hundred years since we've been in the Americas, and we it to be able to really get a better understanding of what was going on here before we came over, Europeans came over mm. and um, started using the land and you know maybe to kind of kind of clarify some of the misconceptions that I think we have about the americas and and you know the percep a lot of the perceptions were that they were pretty primitive and backward and you know i think we know now that you look a lot at a lot of the americas um the civilizations were very advanced and mm-hmm. the populations right. were much greater than they are today um, or what what probably even greater than they are today in terms of native americans but also the you know the I think the estimates were like ten thousand or ten million back when, when uh, Columbus came came over. But th- they were probably ten times that amount or more. Right. And so it's it's just a it's a really fascinating. I I find nonfiction books to be you know my interest, and
1: mm-hmm. I
3: like uh, really enjoy learning more about um, uh, certainly Native Americans. You know whether it's here in the Americas or even in a place like Australia. Right. So that's that's the kind of thing that I like reading.
1: That book um it it was a I hate to say the word important, but it was an important book when it came out. It got a lot of press. And um I think it's 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 a fascinating read. He did I think a second edition of it, and then a few years later he did a book called 1493. Where he talks about, you know, the impact of Columbus on the New World, and I think that's just an area that not enough people know about, and they don't understand how it, as you said, Bill, it kind of relates to um, how the the North America evolved into what we're living with today, and why we still have some of these same issues with indigenous um, neighbors and and what have you. Um, and I think anyone who really kind of wants to understand better about today should read some of these books. So they really, really do have a different appreciation of, of what it was.
3: Well, and if, if we're ever going to really, you know, do justice to history, you know, we, we have to try to dig for the truth and sometimes it's not very pleasant, right? It's, it's the only way that we're really going to be able to deal with our future, you know, and uh, you know, you can see a lot of stuff in society going on right now, I I think because we've really never dealt with a lot of this. Right.
2: And I don't think our textbooks definitely don't do the time period before 1492, just just as it's like they all start.
1: Yeah, (laughs) this is true.
2: Well, Bill, thank you so, so much for your time today. This has been fascinating talking with you learning more about Benton Hot Springs and the whole Benton area. We yeah. greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks.
3: Well, you're more than welcome. And, and, uh, there's so much more we, I mean, our non little nonprofit, um, maybe not in 2001, but hopefully 2022 we'll be back opening up the store over there and having right. dinners and, and history and you can learn a lot more about some of the very interesting people that came before us here
2: well we we'd love to be a part of that so please keep us posted and we will put links to um the benton hot springs and your nonprofit in our show notes and thank you so much again
3: and well and thank you
1: for the work you folks do We enjoy it.
2: (laughs) We do. We're we're very lucky.
1: (laughs) We learn something new every time we do a podcast, which is the joy of this.
2: Absolutely. And listeners, we hope you learn something new every time you listen in as well. And thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast. If you have a minute, leave us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate that. You can find us at our Instagram account, o 2 Starved, our Facebook page, Oxygen Starved Podcast, as well as our website, Oxygen Starved Podcast. So hit us up. Let us know what you're thinking. If you have any suggestions for books that we could read, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you all so much. Stay safe out there. and We'll see you again soon.
0: Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.